0: So I just finished listening to the voicemail and my cell phone dropped as I slumped into my chair and anxiety and a a sense of despair rushed over me. I was 18 and the voicemail was from a a university that I was really hoping to get at uh, to continue and at that time I was hoping to be a doctor actually. But they said in the voicemail that they only got half the paperwork they needed for a scholarship I was heavily relying on to be able to go. And the funny thing was that all my paperwork was in the same uh, envelope, so it seems kind of ridiculous that they only got half of it. But I got that, and at the end, the voicemail, they said, and the expiration date, like, it has already expired, we're no longer, the the deadline has come, Uh, you can no longer send it in. And I just remember feeling just an absolute, like, what now? Like, there it goes, like, it's lost, now what do I do? And at my time, or at that time, my dad came up to me, and he has been for a while, or he had been, and I wasn't, just wasn't really listening to him. He said, well, don't forget, there's this obscure Bible Institute in northern Wisconsin, in the middle of nowhere. Maybe you should apply to that. And at the time, I was like, well, everything else is lost. Like, why not? And so, so I did, not really caring about whatever or thinking anything of it. So I got accepted, and eventually, that following year as I went, was one of the most Formative times in my whole life, and I met my wife there. I'm sure that you can as well look in your life and put up times that it was clear that God sovereignly directed it. Times, uh, possibly, that were very difficult, that seemed like things were completely out of control. Or times where it felt like you were in a crucible under pressure and heat. And it seemed like everything was out of control. But now looking back, you can say, Yo, like God orchestrated this. It's clear. At that time, it seemed everything was lost, but God was moving and directing things. And honestly, some of you listening may be in that spot right now, where, whether it be financially, with your work, or some loved one who's, who's sick. It seems like things are out of control. A time of heat and stress. And this morning, as we continue to work up to the resurrection of Christ, we will look and consider at at the events in Jesus' life that seem to clearly present that things were out of control. Not only that, that they were going horribly wrong. But the thing we need to see is that God is sovereign even in darkness. God is completely in control of life, even when it seems like everything in your life is completely out of control. So in our passage today, we'll see that God is sovereign even in the very dark hours leading up to Jesus being brutally executed. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, uh, opening them up to Matthew 26. And so we are picking up right where we left off last week. And as we walk through this historical account, like last week, um, we're going we're gonna to read it because it's a, a great account. It tells us what happened to Jesus, and I'm just going to add some commentary throughout it. I also have split it up into 12 short and some very short things that happened to Jesus just to try to help us uh, conceptualize or or grasp everything that happened to Christ. So 12 short parts. And so remember where we're coming from. Just a a few days earlier of the events we'll look at, Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly. And the Jews received him as the long-awaited Messiah King. That just happened days earlier to what we're going to read. And then what we saw last week was Jesus agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Oil Press. Uh, And we saw last week, Jesus was in deep agony and sorrow over the, the, the idea of taking on our sin and the wrath of God that we deserve. And like I said, our passage today picks up right at that point. Right at that point we left off when Jesus comes to his disciples in their sleep again. And he says, hey, wake up, sleep some other time because the time and the hour is at hand and my betrayer is coming. And that's what we'll pick up. So again, 12 short sections to help us understand what is going here. And we'll see what happens to Jesus and how God's sovereign control is through it all. So part number one is Jesus betrayed so matthew chapter 26 we're starting in verse 47 matthew writes this while he was still speaking judas came one of the twelve and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people now the betrayer had given them a sign saying the one i will kiss is the man Seize him and he came up to jesus at once and said, "Greetings, Rabbi," and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, "Friend, do what you came to do." So while while Jesus is still speaking to the disciples and say, "Hey, the hour is at hand," Judas comes. He comes with a crowd. But look at it's interesting that Matthew continues, and all the gospel writers do as well, that he's one of the twelve. Do not forget who Judas is. Judas is one of the twelve that Jesus prayed all night before he picked them. He's one of the twelve that he invested three years of his life. He has fished with Judas. He cut wood with Jesus to burn for the campfires. They fished together. He was one of the twelve. He was one of the twelve that he's been with for three years. This is Judas. And he comes. And he brings a crowd with weapons. A crowd from the chief priests. And it says that Judas, the betrayer, he informed the crowd beforehand, hey, the one I kiss is the man. He is Jesus, Seize him. And so that kissing in our culture seems kind of strange, but it was not abnormal. It was normal in this first century Judaism in the Near East. And it's interesting because the kissing on where it occurred had a lot of meaning. For example, here, a kiss on the feet was typical of an of a slave to his master, or a person seeking mercy from a king, a kiss on the feet. A kiss on the back of the hand was typical of an ordinary servant to their master. A kiss on the hem of a garment, it was a sign of devotion and respect. And then this last one, a kiss on the cheek, accompanied with an embrace, was a sign of close affection And love reserved only for the very close and most intimate relationships. And it is this last kiss that Judas betrayed Jesus with. This kiss of intense and very intimate relationship. That's how Judas betrayed Jesus. And Jesus, how does he respond? He says, friend, do what you came to do. Jesus has already decided what's going to happen. Do what you came to do. So that first point we see is that jesus is betrayed number two jesus arrested picking back up in verse 50 matthew writes then they came up and laid hands on jesus and seized him and behold one of those who were with jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear then jesus said to him put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out, against, come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled." So Jesus is betrayed, and then he's arrested by this crowd. In Luke, he records that this crowd included officers of the temple, the Jewish temple. And why that's important is because the officers of the Jewish temple, they have been given limited police powers by the Romans. The ruling authority, the Romans, have given the the officers of the temple limited police uh, uh, powers in matters that concern Jewish religion and society. And so they had the power to arrest someone. The Romans had to give it to them. And so they arrest Jesus. And it says that one of the disciples takes out his seer and he cuts off the ear of one of the, the servants there. And it's clear that he was going for the head, but he missed. And we see from the other gospel writers that this is Peter. Peter took out the sword, went to defend Jesus, went for the head, but missed and cut off the ear. And we read... In a different account, it's Malchus, the servants. And we also read that right after this, Jesus picked up his ear and healed him. And yet they still want to arrest him. Can you imagine that the man they're going to arrest heals one of them, and they still continue with arresting him? And Jesus says, put away your, your sword, Peter. Why? Because this is why Jesus came. And he said that if he wanted, he could appeal to his father and get 12 legions. 12 legions of angels. Now, to do the math for you here, a legion in the Roman army had about 6,000 soldiers. And Jesus says, I could get 12 legions of angels. And so that actually looks at 72,000 angels, Jesus says they could get. And then consider the magnitude of this power. In a historical count recorded in First Kings, It's recorded that one angel killed 185,000 troops of the Assyrian army of Sennacherib. And Jesus says, "Yup, I could call 72 of the angels right now if I wanted to. And if you're interested, the amount of people that that amount of angels could kill in the least is 13.3 billion people. And so it is clear that Jesus could have this happen, but he doesn't. And he says multiple times, twice here, that he's letting this happen and he doesn't call the angels so that the scriptures are fulfilled. We see that twice here, that Jesus, the Messiah, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, he has come to die to save sinners. And so Jesus does not call the angels. And he asks, why, why are you bringing weapons as if I'm a robber? I've been in the public teaching for three years and now you come like this. And so we see that Jesus betrayed and he's arrested Section number three here. Jesus abandoned. At the end of verse 56, Matthew writes a short statement, Then all disciples left him and fled. All of Jesus' close friends abandoned him. They saw what was going on, and they left. And no doubt, you've had this experience with a a close friend, a close family member that just abandoned you. And even worse, in in a time of need, and we see here that Jesus at one point all of his close friends abandoned him at once. Yes, Jesus predicted this would happen just earlier that evening, but that does not minimize that pain. That in this time, a huge crowd with weapons arresting him, and his friends just leave. They run. They they, they flee. And it could be quick for us to ridicule the disciples like, Come on, man, like how can you leave Jesus? But how often do we abandon identifying with Jesus at work, at school, out of fear of possible embarrassment and mockery? So Jesus is betrayed, he's arrested, he's abandoned. Number four, he's falsely accused. Pick Picking back up in verse 57 Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance. As far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So here it is the religious, the religious leaders, and that we read throughout each of the accounts, have been looking for an excuse to seize and arrest Jesus and to put him to death. They've been looking for it for a while. And they finally have him. They finally have him arrested. And they bring him to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin basically at that time was kind of like the, the supreme court of the Jews. And again, the Romans, they allowed power to the Sanhedrin. And, and things mattered or in matter to Jewish religion society. So they bring Jesus before the, the Sanhedrin. We see Peter falling behind. We'll pick him up later here. But we see that they're seeking false testimony to kill him what a sham how unjust and detestable that they were looking for false testimony just to kill him they, they really wanted him dead and they found none they found nothing it says but that didn't stop the religious leaders they wanted Jesus dead and it's interesting to know that they wanted him dead so much they didn't follow their own laws for example according to their laws it was illegal to hold a trial at night and this is happening thursday night friday morning this is at night and they're having a trial according to their laws they needed to have specific charges they didn't have any when they arrested jesus and they weren't finding any and number three according to the laws it was required to have a minimum of two witnesses but none of them agreed mark and Mark's account that none of them agreed none of their stories agreed And so Jesus, he's betrayed, he's arrested, he's abandoned, and now he's falsely accused. But the religious leaders, they wanted him dead. And this leads us to number five, Jesus wrongfully charged. Picking up in 60, verse 60. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So finally, two witnesses agree. They say, hey, Jesus said that he could destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. And the truth was, truth was that Jesus didn't say he could. He said he would. And the temple he referred to was his own body. John tells us that. It was his own body that he... Referring to his, his death and his resurrection. But even with this accusation, it said that Jesus remained silent. And we'll see that throughout this whole account, he remained silent. For a pilot, we we'll see that he remained silent. One commentator describes Jesus' silence this way. The silence of innocence, the silence of dignity, the silence of integrity, the silence of infinite trust, and his heavenly father, it was a silence in which the lying words against him reverberated in the ears of the guilty judges and of the false witnesses they had bribed. And so the high priest Caiaphas, he says, hey, tell us if you're the Christ, which is interesting because Jesus has made statements about that throughout his, th- his three years of ministry. And Jesus says, yes, I am. And he alludes to Daniel 7:13, which we looked at two weeks ago, which says this, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. A picture of the Messiah coming to God the Father. So Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah. So the high priest, he, tours, he, he tears his robes. He charges him with blasphemy, which was worthy of death. They have Finally gotten the charge they've wanted. We can finally kill him. We can finally kill Jesus. But the thing is, it is only blasphemy if it isn't true. It's only blasphemy if he wasn't the Messiah King. And Jesus is the Messiah King. He was wrongfully charged. But they wanted to kill him. And the Jews, they needed approval from the Romans to execute anyone. And so that's where we see him go next. It's the Romans. They break all of their own laws to kill Jesus. In fact, they needed 24 hours after the conviction before they can actually do something. But they rushed this fast. They want to get this done. So Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested. He's abandoned. He's falsely accused. And now he's wrongfully charged. And then another horrible thing happens. And this is part six. Jesus denied. Picking up in verse 69. Certainly, you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. A servant girl approaches Peter and says, Hey, you were with him. He says, no, 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 you you don't know what you're talking about. No, I don't know him. Then another servant girl sees him, tells some other people like, hey, Peter fouled Jesus. Jesus says, no, under oath he says, no, I do not know the man. And then the bystanders listen to him talk for a little bit. And it gives away by his Galilean accent that he was with Jesus. And they say, hey, you are, you are a follower of Christ. And Peter, it says, He he invokes a curse on himself. And this is um, possibly the most serious way conceivable to take the, the Lord's name in vain. In essence, he says this, may God kill and damn me if I'm not speaking the truth. And he denies Jesus a third time. He says, the rooster crows as it is becoming morning, it's becoming Friday morning, and Peter remembers that Jesus said this would happen. And Peter ran off weeping uncontrollably. When was the last time you seen a a grown man weep uncontrollably? Well, Peter, he saw his failure and he ran off weeping uncontrollably. So follow this. Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested. He's abandoned. He's falsely accused. He's wrongfully charged. And he is denied. And that brings us to part seven which Matthew here, as you can see, starting in chapter 27, he inserts this account of Jesus' betrayer, Judas. And what we see is that Jesus was essentially sold to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. So follow with me, open to to chapter 27, verse 1. Matthew records, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Remember, in order to execute someone, the Jews needed permission from the Romans. So they go to Pilate. Verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, "It is not lawful to put them in the treasury, since it is blood money." So they took counsel and brought with them, brought with them the potters' field, or bought, I'm sorry, and bought with them the potters' field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that, therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, "And they took the thirty pieces of silver." the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they, gave them, and, he, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed them. So Judas is seized with guilt and he returns the money. And notice that Judas is not seeking forgiveness. If he was seeking forgiveness, he would have went to Jesus. But he was just trying to, trying to, somehow lessen the overwhelming guilt he was feeling. He was trying to get rid of it. That's why he goes to the chief priest. And the chief priest says, what is it to us? It's done. What's done is done. And so he says that Judas chucks the silver pieces, and he runs out, and he goes, and he kills himself. And then the chief priest, they call it themselves, is his blood money. And they go and they buy a field, which, again, is in in accordance with the Scriptures, is a fulfillment of prophecy but what we see from this is the backstory of Jesus's betrayal and the quick gathering of the Sanhedrin. Remember, this is the middle of the night and they were able to gather the Sanhedrin. What we see is there it was all planned. It was all planned. His, his betrayal, his arrest, the Sanhedrin being gathered that he was brought to, to, to be tried. It was all planned. We see that Jesus was literally sold. He was betrayed, arrested, abandoned, falsely accused, wrongfully charged. He was denied and then he was sold but the tragedy does not end there. Part eight, he is now rejected. Picking up at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, "'Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ?' For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, "'Have nothing to do with this righteous man.'" For I have suffered much, suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the governor, I'm sorry, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And destroy Jesus. The governors again said to them, "Which of the two do you want me to release for you?" And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to him, "Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ?" They all said, "Let him be crucified." And he said, "Why? What evil has he done?" but they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Again, the Jews have no authority to execute, so they go to Pilate, the governor of the area. And again, we see Jesus silent. Silent before his accusers. He doesn't try to defend himself. And we read here, as Matthew describes for us, it was a custom of the governor to release a prisoner during the feast. The, uh, the feast of unleavened bread, the whole week, the feast of, Uh, of Passover. And no doubt this was to keep the the Jews from rioting, to keep them content and happy. And so Pilate, uh, he gives them a choice between Jesus and Barabbas. And we learn from Luke and John on their account that Barabbas, he was a thief, a murderer, and an insurrectionist. Most likely, because of the seriousness of his crimes, he was on his way to be executed. And there's possibly a good chance that the cross that Jesus is crucified on was originally constructed for Barabbas. And in John, we learn that this occurs at 6 a.m. on Friday and three hours before Jesus is crucified. So in the middle of this, it says that Pilate's wife sends a messenger telling Pilate about a dream concerning Jesus. And this isn't surprising. We're not told anything else, but it's not surprising Because everyone knew about Jesus. They knew about his miracles. He's healing tons of people. They know about his teaching. They know about his triumphant entry in Jerusalem. Everyone knows. So it's not surprising the Romans know who Jesus is. So Pilate asked, who do you want me to release? This notorious prisoner, Barabbas, or Jesus. And they yell out the murderer's name, Barabbas. Jesus is rejected. He's betrayed, he's arrested, he's abandoned, he's falsely accused, he's wrongfully charged, he's denied, he's sold, now he's rejected. Brings us to part nine, and then we see that Jesus is sentenced to death. Picking up in verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us, in our children, then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate sees that the Jews were getting angry. And if he did not appease them, a riot might begin. And we need to understand some history here. So Pilate's position as governor was all about you keep the peace. You make sure there's no insurrections going on and you keep the peace. So if a revolt or a conflict started, Pilate would have to answer to Caesar. In his position, even his life could be at stake. And Pilate, within three years before this event, already had three times done something unnecessary to provoke the Jews and almost had it right in his hands. So three times he has almost already had to answer to Caesar. In fact, from this time when Jesus before Pilate Three years after this, Pilate would unnecessarily go after the Sadducees, who would then talk to to Caesar, who would then banish Pilate, who then would kill himself. And so my point in saying all that is that this threat of the Jews' writing was a serious deal to Pilate. It was very significant. He has passed with this. His position and his life is at stake. And so Pilate, here we see, takes this a little cautious. He caves in and he says he washes hands free of the guilt. And Jesus is sentenced to death. Jesus is betrayed, arrested, abandoned, falsely accused, wrongfully charged, denied, sold, rejected, and sentenced to death. But before he's crucified, he's tortured. Part ten, verse twenty-six. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And so being scourged meant being flogged with a tool that was called the cat of nine tails. It had a wooden stick, a short wooden stick, and had several leather thongs coming off of it. And at the end of the leather thongs were sharp pieces of bone and metal. They would take the man to be scourged, tie him to a post, his hands above his hands, with his feet dangling at the ground, and then... Two soldiers would be on either side and they would scourge him. Uh, One commentator writes about the effects of this. Muscles would be lacerated, veins and arteries torn open. It was not uncommon for the kidneys, spleen, and other organs to be exposed and slashed. Many men died because of this before they could be taken out to be executed. We know that Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. And he was so weakened that they needed to take a man from the crowd to help Jesus carry his cross. So he's betrayed, arrested, abandoned, falsely accused, wrongfully charged, denied, sold, rejected, sentenced to death, and tortured. And this brings us to part 11, and then he's mocked. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took their reed and struck him on the head. So in front of, of all these men, Jesus is stripped naked. He's put on a scarlet robe, mocking his royalty he put, they put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a reed in his hand. They mockingly knelt down before him. They spat at him and then they struck him on the head with that reed. This is the son of God, the God-man. Betrayed, arrested, abandoned, falsely accused, wrongfully charged, denied, sold, rejected, sentenced to death, tortured and mocked, and that leads us right to the end, Part 12, the last one, verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. So this is it. The hour is at hand, Jesus said. He is being led to be crucified, and that'll bring us right to this Friday, Good Friday at seven. We'll we'll pick that back up. But what should we see from all this? All this going on. What should we see? is that even in this very dark time, God was sovereign and completely in control. Yes, Jesus is betrayed, arrested, abandoned, falsely accused, wrongfully charged, denied, sold, rejected, sentenced to death, tortured, mocked, and led to his execution. And all this, God is in complete control. But can you imagine all this happening to you? Would you feel like God was completely in control? If you were betrayed and then arrested, all your friends abandon you. You're falsely accused in front of a trial. You're wrongfully charged. You're denied by those that love you. You're sold. You're rejected by your own people. You're sentenced to death and you're tortured, mocked, and then led to your execution. Would you believe God is still in control? In Acts chapter two, Paul preaches a great sermon. And in it, he says this, this Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. It was all according to God's plan. Jesus told Judas to to do what you came to do, friend, because this is what Jesus had come to do. Jesus could have sent an army of angels to defend him, but he didn't. And he told Peter, put your sword away. Why? Because he is doing what he came to do. Jesus did all these things. And you let it happen in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. We see that repeated through all this. Jesus predicted all this would happen. The night before he predicted this. Days, weeks, months before he's predicted this is going to happen. And throughout it all, Jesus is silent. This is why he came. He didn't argue for himself. He didn't defend himself. This is why he came. In fact... During this time, Matthew doesn't record this, but John does for us. In John 19, he records a conversation Jesus has with Pilate. It goes like this, the exchange. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above, so Jesus says you can't do nothing to me, except for what's been given to you. So God is completely in control in dark times. So what should we do in light of this? Three things. Number one, understand that God is completely sovereign. He reigns over governments and kings. The only power that they have has been given to them. He reigns over your failures. We see Peter fail horribly, horribly. Yet, we see after the resurrection in John 21 that Jesus reinstates Peter. God is sovereign over your failures. God is completely in control. Romans 8:28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. He works everything for good. Not that everything that comes your way is good, but that he works everything for good. So number one, understand that God is completely sovereign. Number two, trust him. Trust him. From 1 Peter, Peter writes this, When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then later in the letter he writes this, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So when things are out of control, trust God and continue to obey. Just like we saw, trust and obey. Continue to obey. Continue as a husband to lead your family. Continue as a wife to submit to your husband's leadership. Continue as parents to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. As kids, continue to obey your parents. As workers, continue to work as unto the Lord. Continue to obey God in all areas and trust God with what is happening. So understand that God is sovereign. And number two, trust him. And that brings us to number three, understand and believe Jesus will return and he will reign here on earth. We read that the Roman soldiers mockingly knelt down and bowed down to Jesus. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that there will be a day when every knee will bow and it won't be mockingly. It will be out of obedience to Christ. Either you bow now in repentance and faith and find forgiveness and mercy and freedom, or when he returns, you'll be forced to bow and you'll be punished for your disobedience. So, this morning I tell you repent of your sin and turn to Christ in faith. So, church family, and for those listening, let's trust the God who is on his throne even today. Pray with me, Lord. it's difficult at times to, to really trust that you are in control. Lord, it's difficult at times to believe that you care about us, that we can be the insignificant details in our life. It could be difficult to believe that. Lord, help us. Help us to see that you control even the minute details, that you care about the things that come towards us and things that happen. Give us grace to trust you. Even when things go sour even when we're when we're suffering as Peter says, may we entrust our souls to you. Help us God. Amen.